Hello everyone, it's January 2nd, 2024, a new year, but let's talk about the last couple weeks first. There's a Falcon 9 first stage that sank into the sea but also made it back to port, then there's the Firefly Alpha that made it to orbit but also kinda didn't. And yes, there's more to those stories, so let's talk about them, and liftoff! Episode 440 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Dennis. Ben's off again. He got tickets to an escape room in Philly, I think. And as far as we know, he's still there. Uh, he never made it out. But um, <laughs> no, I mean, he's probably fine. <laughs> I, I assume this was like a Christmas gift or something. I don't know, but... <laughs> Uh, I've never done an escape room. I have. They are pretty fun. It's 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 a big part of who you do it with. But um, yeah, yeah. it's kind of like... Yeah, it's just very... Very fun, very different kind of uh, activity to do with friends or family. They sound interesting. Um, I've seen some videos of them, like how they work, what you know goes on. But uh, you just kind of like look for clues and put it together. It's sort of, it's just like a mystery, right? And you have to, in the, in to solve it, the goal is to escape, obviously. And mm-hmm. so I guess you have to find like a key or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, there's clues and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. Oh, so I don't have news, but this is something that's been around for apparently four weeks now. But have you seen that there is a movie coming out called ISS? Uh, no, I haven't. I just saw this trailer yesterday, and I, I, I hate spoilers, so I usually stop watching a trailer once I'm kind of like, okay, this is good enough. I want to – I will watch this. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it looks pretty cool. Like, the ISS really does look like the ISS, and you can see, you know, the proper vehicles, you know, coming to the station, and you can – tell you know they're they're sitting around the dinner table at uh zvezda and it's like pretty legit in all those ways but it looks like it's going to turn into some kind of action thriller sort of film where i guess the basic premise is uh you can jump forward i guess 30 seconds to avoid this (laughs) but um it looks like there's you know war breaks out on earth uh and then you know there's going to then be a conflict where the russian government wants the cosmonauts to secure the ISS while the U.S. government wants the astronauts to secure the ISS. And so who knows what's going to happen because there's no guns presumably on board. But yeah, so I guess that's mm-hmm. that's the basic premise. What happens if uh, the hmm. one of the orbital segments tried to take over the other by force? Interesting. Yeah. So I'm looking at some information on it. I mean, this could go either way. This could be like really good or really bad. Yep. <laughs> I think it's all about the execution. So I agree. Yeah, there's gonna be there's gonna have to be some level of Hollywooding it where like you're not, you're not gonna wait an hour after the uh, the spacecraft docks before you finally open the uh, vestibule after running all your checks and everything. You know, everything's gonna be you mm. know fast and at the seat of, their, seat of your pants. But um, exactly how much they depart from <laughs> from it, yeah, exactly, is up in the air. Because when you start having if it becomes a thriller or action film, then it's like it's a very easy way to go and just get off the rails entirely. B-1058 lost at sea, uh, or at least some of it. So this is a Falcon 9 first stage. Yeah, this is one of the things that stuck out in my mind over the past week. I guess we're all busy with the holidays, but uh, you see some images and you go, oh, that, that looks crazy. So this is a booster that apparently had a successful landing, but maybe, I don't know, it stuck the landing, but uh, it might have had some issues on touchdown that then maybe led to it uh, tipping over and then half of it broke off and fell into the sea. Uh, mm-hmm. At least that's my takeaway. Yeah, no, and I'm not entirely sure if it was necessarily that the something about the landing led to its ultimate demise, but it was just that it had a tough journey back and it was an older booster. Mm-hmm. And so it... While a newer booster might have been able to survive this trip, it, it couldn't. 
And so uh, this 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 is the booster that was you know the record breaker, the current record breaker. So having done 19 missions, which is just ridiculous and in a good way. Ultimately, on its way back, uh, the wind and waves uh, they reported was enough to basically topple it over. And like you said, part of it made it back. So I never quite realized that, you know, the Falcon 9 boosters, they, if you look at these photos, which are incredible, um, some of these ones that uh, John Kraus took uh, are just really, really good photos of it. But Mm -hmm. evidently the bottom part of the booster that still has like the black paint on it, um, that's where the kerosene tank is. And it looks like everything above that had, must have broken off and fell in the ocean. And so it's the the bottom nub of the booster uh, and the legs and the engines that you can see returning here. But um, but yeah, it was it was less than 100 miles from making it to shore. They basically announced this by tweeting on uh, on Christmas Day that or Christmas night that in the morning uh, is when they lost it. And there's a really cool website a, uh, a a colleague of mine has shown me called Ventusky or Ventusky. I don't know how you're supposed to say it. But um, uh, V-E-N-T-U-S-K-Y. And it's one of these uh, sites that show kind of like global weather patterns. Like, So you can look up, among other things, wind speed and gusts er, and waves. And what's cool about this site is that you can do it any day that you want, really. And so I was able to use this website and go back to Christmas Day. And you can see off the coast of Florida, where you know the Cape is, there were waves that were over eight feet high and wind speeds that were in like 30 mile per hour range. So I guess that was enough to knock it over because this being such a historic booster, 1058, it was old enough that they didn't bother upgrading it with like dynamic landing legs that can like, you know, adjust for the uh, uneven, you know, shaking and swaying of the uh, return mm-hmm. ship. So, so yeah, so uh, unfortunately, you know, having such a uh, a long history uh, is part of what doomed it by not having the upgrades because it was such an older booster. Um, but, uh, and to give you a sense of what, you know, it had done uh, and why I say it's a storied booster is that this is the one that flew Demo-2. Its very first mission was Demo-2, taking uh, Hurley and Benkin to the ISS uh, and having, you know, basically crewed spaceflight return to the United States. And so that was huge. Uh, of course, only one of the 19 missions. Um, another one was a, a South Korean military satellite, and then they it also did a CRS. But the lion's uh, share of its missions were a couple of these transporters, ride shares, as well as 14 different Starlinks. And this most recent one was a Starlink mission that it did uh, and then landed uh, well, but then, again, didn't survive uh, making it back. So I was going to say um... – the reason why earlier I said that maybe there was um, that maybe the landing wasn't entirely nominal was just that on the photos, if you look at them, one thing that mm. was pointed out was that the the little telescopic pistons there, uh, there's a couple that are not completely, uh, you know, extended, and so it was there is a possibility that like when it landed, it was like already tipped over. That certainly could have helped, but it's also possible that that retraction happened once it tipped over. So, you know, who can really say? But yeah, the legs are not all like equally extended. I mean, there's a, there's a fourth one that's like crushed under the body of the rocket itself, but then there's three others that you can see and they're all at slightly different lengths. Yeah. There's, there's, there's four main segments and then a little extra. And one of them only has those four segments. Um, mm-hmm. I know, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Well, oh yeah. So yeah, maybe that, that was it, it that did it. Or maybe the wind and waves is what knocked it out of balance. But that'll be an interesting um, 
uh, if we hear more about the uh, at that level of detail. Not even Octagrabber could save it. <laughs> <laughs> Not even Octagrabber. It's doing its best. And so, I mean, I, I guess the only good news is if, you, if you're wondering, like, oh, no, what's going to happen is that uh, uh, John Edwards um, – uh, good John Edwards, not uh, for older listeners, uh, different John Edwards. Um, he's the the VP at SpaceX apparently for uh, uh, for the Falcon uh, vehicles, and he uh, had tweeted that quote: "We are planning to salvage the engines and do life leader inspections on the remaining hardware. There's still quite a bit of value in this booster. We will not let it go to waste." That's pretty cool. I mean, just the fact that it, it's undergone this kind of damage, because also several of the nozzles they were pretty badly impacted mm-hmm. during that fall and so they're just crumpled but uh i guess the engines themselves are probably in good condition mm-hmm. you know so you just have to replace those nozzles and yeah like why i mean if it's made what you say uh yeah it's made 19 flights so far and i guess i don't know how you'd qualify this so would it be you could say that these engines have had like you know say that they launch again then you can say that they've had 20 flights uh not necessarily 20 booster reuses but 20 engine reuses and i don't know if that's a record i mean i suppose not for well maybe i don't know for a space shuttle I, i'm actually not sure about that <laughs> i have i actually have no idea whether or not they ever swap engines out of a single booster or if the booster flies with the same engines this entire life i think that it's just probably as needed i don't hmm. think that they i certainly don't think that they swap them all out yeah and i would just you know i would think maybe like you know one here and one there but then again i mean they're very reliable so Probably not, given how frequently these fly. So who knows? It's just something I hadn't thought about before. At least it seems to me that uh, swapping out individual engines is probably something that not that doesn't happen just because if it did and it happened routinely, I feel like we would have talked about it more, you know, or mm-hmm. heard about it. And it seems that these boosters, you know, they don't bother with the paint job either. Not that they would, but it, they really do look like, you know, I mean, obviously they're inspected. There are some things that mm-hmm. probably have to be replaced. Um, and those landing legs, you know, they don't go back in unless you do something special. Like once they're extended, they stay out. So it, it's not like they have like a, you know, 24 hour turnaround mm-hmm. time or anything like that. It still takes time, but like an actual engine seems like a bigger deal that maybe we would hear a lot about that. And that would be a bigger part of the process. So yeah, that's, that's super, that's, that's a good point. One other thing I noticed is about the way it fell over. You can see one that it seemed like it landed at about as worse a place as it could have where the upper part of the booster above the, the RP one tank, the kerosene tank would have just like, was just right at the edge. Like it basically fell so that the nub is right at the edge of the, the deck of the ship. And so it was like just perfect for it to just go and break off right at that point there and then have the upper part of the booster fall into the water. And you could see all the cables running, uh, uh, going along the, uh, the, the raceway on the side of it that are still kind of dang- like dangling out and into the water. Yeah, you can see cables and you can see... Is that the downcomer or whatever? Yeah, and you can see, like, you can see inside, you can see there's some helium tanks. I believe there's also some uh, nitrogen tanks. Yeah, you can see a lot of stuff. Like, like, it's really interesting. Like, it's a view that you don't normally get to see. Mm-hmm. So, you're so like, you can really see right up in the guts of that thing, and it's pretty cool. Yeah, so this flight was, uh, or this mission was a successful mission, just not a successful bringing back to port of the first stage. But let's talk about, uh, SpaceX's launch record this year since, you know, it's the end of the year and I thought it would be interesting to talk about. So, I mean, their goal has been for some time 100 launches in a year and I thought it was pretty cool that they came close. They got 96 total launches. Now that's not including Starship because, you know, that's something different. But as far as Falcon 9s and Falcon Heavies go, 96 launches. They were just shy. 
So almost made it. So the numbers are 91 Falcon 9 launches and 5 Falcon Heavies, which, which is more than I realized. Like, I mean, mm. like we always talk about Falcon Heavy launches, but I didn't realize that there were five this past year. So, I mean, this is a rocket that's actually getting some work, even though the idea was to phase it out pretty quickly, but now it's kind of finding its niche. Yeah, for real. I wonder if this is more than all of the previous Falcon 9, or sorry, Falcon Heavy launches. Had it had it done five before this year, even? Yeah, so this is more than... Uh, the past, uh, what, five years before that, because uh, starting in 2018 was the first launch, and then there were three others, the last one in 2022. But in 2023 alone, they did five. So yeah, it's really picking up its launch cadence. So that's a lot of launches, 96 total. Um, But of that, 34 of them, just 34, were non-Starlink launches. So I mean, like 96 is almost 100. So basically, the actual percentage comes out to be 64.6% of the launches were Starlink missions. <laughs> so that's... That's a big chunk. That's basically almost two-thirds of all launches were Starlink missions. So obviously that makes possible a, a launch cadence that SpaceX wouldn't be able to maintain, like even if they could technically do it, just because I don't think that there's that many, there just isn't that kind of demand. So like really, Starlink is what's making this possible. Yeah, I think I think you pretty much nailed it. Is that it, it shows the, reliab the reliability of the vehicle for sure, because we're all like in so impressed and in awe of how frequently it flies. But I think that sometimes we might mistake how frequently it flies for just how much demand there is for the vehicle, which I think when you say two-thirds of the launches are just putting their own product up in orbit, uh -huh. kind of shows it's not quite... We, we might have a little bit of a... Uh, we're probably overestimating just how... <laughs> How, how much demand there is for the Falcon 9. Good point. I mean, and plus it's just not feasible. You you can't do everything with Falcon 9. Like it's not, I mean, it's a very capable vehicle. It's not that capable. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just too many, you know, scenarios where it doesn't fit. Yeah. So of these 96 total launches, they have a 100% success rate. So, I mean, once again, kudos to SpaceX. Incredible. Good job. <laughs> that is impressive. And then 99 landings. Now, if they had 96 total launches, how did they get 99 landings? I assume that's because there are some, you know, Falcon heavies in there. And I don't know if they've ever brought back all three boosters, but they always bring back at least not, well, no, not always, but they often mm. bring back at least two side boosters. Mm -hmm. I guess a central one. I'm not sure about that one. That one might be a drone landing in some cases, but, um, but yeah, I assume that that makes up for it. And that's how you get to the 99 number. So they've had 99 landings. 100% of those as well were successful, maybe successful ish because this most recent one, you know, didn't quite make it back in one piece, but still, I mean, it did land. It just, uh, it just didn't arrive. <laughs> and by the way, I just looked at the most recent Falcon heavies and they all, none of them tried to, uh, save the, uh, the, the center center booster. Okay. Um, yeah. Probably because there's just so much downrange, it just either wasn't feasible or reasonable, or they just wanted that extra performance. But they either got successfully got both side boosters, or they just didn't attempt. There was that one mission where they didn't attempt to recover anything. Okay. So that would be four missions where they actually did attempt to recover, which would be eight total boosters, yeah, right? Yeah. So five got two, six, zero, seven got two, Eight got two, and nine got two. So two, four, six, eight. Yep. Yeah, so that's eight boosters coming from Falcon Heavy. 91 plus eight, 99 landings. Exactly. And then also, just in case anyone's interested, 21 of those landings were a return to launch site, and then there were 78 drone ship landings. So still mostly 
you know, on those drone ships. Uh, just goes to show how useful that is. That's a cool number to know because I actually had no idea like how often, because it seems like these days return to launch site seems kind of common, but I guess not. Mostly it's Falcon Heavies. I think Falcon Heavies is where you mostly see it. So that's probably what those, you know, eight boosters that Falcon Heavy had. I'm guessing that all eight of them, I believe, were return to launch site. Maybe you can clarify that for me. I'm not sure because otherwise you would need both of the ships out there. And I don't think that they usually have two or is there three now? You know, these, these, yeah, these all came back. Uh, these all came back home. Yeah, so eight of those twenty-one that were returned to launch site were Falcon Heavy boosters, and then the rest were Falcon Nine. So yeah, Falcon Nine still mostly just puts it out on the drone ship, uh, which I guess that's more efficient. <laughs> I guess there's at least three drone ships, right? There's there's a, of course I still love you. Just read the instructions. And a shortfall of gravitas. That's the one I was forgetting about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there is three. And just some further stats according to spaceexplore.com, which is where we're getting this information, by the way. I don't think I mentioned that, but uh, there's a great website called spaceexplore.com and it uh, has all of this, just, you know, like lays it all out. And uh, one other interesting number is that the total crew launched on a SpaceX vehicle and which I guess would all be Falcon 9s, uh, mm-hmm. was a total of 12. And so how many? Missions was that because don't they normally only launch? Was it four or is it four people go on a Falcon Nine? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that was three three missions with people, and of those twelve people, ten of them were government, two commercial. So there's two commercial passengers as well. Yeah, it was it was crews six and seven, and Axiom two were the three crewed spaceflights uh, in 2023 that flew on a Falcon Nine. But yeah, so I guess then that must mean that the Axiom mission only had two commercial people. I guess it wonders how you de- how you determine things. Is that was the one Peggy Whitson, who I guess you could call a government person, but um, John Schaffner was the pilot on that mission. And I mean, I thought I would think of them as a commercial, like you know, a private actor. And then the two mission specialists were um, both from uh, these uh, Saudi Arabian pilots, Ali Al Karni and Rayana Barnawi. So unless somebody, I mean, yeah, like I don't know, like. Obviously, those I, I. Oh, maybe the two Saudi astronauts counted as government because it's the Saudi government, <laughs> and maybe the two commercial are John Schaffner and then. But no, they wouldn't put a commercial person on Crew Six or Crew Seven. I don't know how you got how you get those numbers. I think you should just say put an asterisk and maybe it's uh, instead of a ten two split, it's a nine three split. <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> but yeah, so that's all the SpaceX news. Uh, so let's uh, let's uh, translate on over to a different story. Firefly in their uh, malfunction. Yeah, that happened on December twenty second, and this is their fourth flight of uh, Firefly Alpha, right? So. Uh, this was Fly the Lightning, and uh, there's not much information uh, so far, but um, they had some upper stage issues. Uh, the uh, payload was a Lockheed Martin experimental payload. Uh, so this is what's called an electronically steerable antenna. And apparently this is uh, – I mean, it looks pretty interesting. Uh, I don't think that they would consider it a super top-priority payload because obviously I think that they were aware of the risks. Uh, uh, so, um, But it is unfortunate that it was lost. Ben Ben referenced this as like an upcoming event and pointed out that this, this electronic Electronically steerable antenna, I guess, is a particular payload that's, I guess, testing something uh, special about these types of antennas. But they they exist. These are it's just a phased array antenna. It sounds like mm-hmm. right where you just have like this flat surface of the antenna, but based on how you send out the signals, you can actually 
aim it in different directions. Yeah, exactly. I But I think the difference with this one, what does make this special is that this is supposed to be one that can be calibrated much more quickly and it can be produced at, at much lower cost. That's the big difference here. Because I know on Soyuz, on Soyuz's, they replace the... Uh, those antennas that used to spin with uh, mm-hmm. electronically with, you know, phased array ones. And so they, we don't get that spinning dish anymore, which is kind of a shame because they were fun to look at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They are fun to look at. <laughs> um, so what happened was the first stage staging event that went off well, and it did achieve its transfer orbit of 215 by 523 kilometers. But then from there, about 40 minutes later, there was supposed to be a second stage relight of the engine, and that was in order to circularize the orbit, but that didn't happen. And according to Space Force, there have been two objects observed in that orbit. So it looks like, you know, the payload did separate from the second stage, but then nothing happened. So that second stage was supposed to have made that burn, and then the separation happens. And it looks like maybe, you know, they quickly realized, uh, or I mean, I don't know if this is something that would be automated, or maybe, I don't know. But basically, <laughs> um, the, yeah, they didn't get the desired orbit, but uh, they did go for a separation of the payload because there is still some things that can be done before it re-enters because at a perigee of 215 kilometers, it's going to come back pretty quickly. But they did confirm the failure of the Lightning One engine, uh, and that's the second stage engine. This is an engine that's a LOX RP-1 engine. It uses a tap-off combustion cycle, and it uses TTAB in order to reignite those engines. And so, you know, that's always a it's a somewhat more complex process, I think. Uh, at least from what I read, you know, relighting these engines, maybe specifically these Firefly ones, these and the, uh, the first stage Reaver engines. I mean, there obviously was some kind of a relight issue. I don't know if it, you know, I mean, we'll just have to wait and see what the reason for that is because there has been no information yet, but I don't know if we're going to get it necessarily anytime soon because I was trying to find some information on the previous, uh, you know, second stage issues that they've had and there was nothing. I mean, there just wasn't any information given. And I don't know if you remember, we talked about this. I mean, this happened, I guess, last year. So October of 2022, I believe. This was a mission where they had deemed it a success because they changed the (laughs) criteria for a successful launch to just getting into this, you know, preliminary orbit. Yep. That's kind of how they spun that. Um, And uh, it's happened again. (laughs) A little bit of a pattern forming. Yeah. Their first failure, I believe, on their first launch was a first stage failure, and that was due to a fuel valve closure that was due to a loss of electrical signal. So basically, it kind of, I think, uh, just didn't open or failed shut. They just, you know, had to blow that one up. The second flight, uh, which was in October that, yeah, we were just talking about, that one was delivered to the wrong orbit. The third flight was successful, the most recent one, and this one, uh, yeah, another partial failure, partial success. I don't know, whatever. Um, depends on how they define it and we define it, yeah. but hopefully, uh, they can do some work with the satellite before it comes back. But it's, it's looking like maybe just a couple weeks and then it'll deorbit. Yeah. I'm getting, uh, Astra deja vu with this launch record. Yeah. I don't know if you want to call the partial <laughs> failures, uh, a half, in which case it's two out of four or, you know, Really, only one success out of four missions so far. Yeah. If they could be two out of seven, they'll, I guess, be in better shape than Astro was. But. So that's Firefly's launch record so far. Mm. <laughs> um, not quite as good. Uh, hopefully, they'll get there. It's a very cool rocket. I like it a lot. So let's move right along then to uh, this week in spaceflight history. We have two winners. We have Uncle Willie and Hydrak. The clue was secondary failures, and this was a clue that we – uh, we spent some time trying to come up with, we couldn't think of anything for this particular event. 
this is the best we could do. And apparently it was a good enough clue because we, you know, still got some winners. So yeah, what was this secondary failure? Yeah, it, it took a surprising amount of time for us to come up with a clue. Yeah. Like this. And so, but yeah, good job, Uncle Willie and Hydrack. Uh, this uh, week's event was uh, took place on the 3rd of January, 1999. And it was the launch of the secondary payload, Deep Space 2. And so I'll tell you what uh, this payload is. Um, you might be familiar with it already, or once uh, I tell you what it was, a sec- what was the primary payload on that mission, then you'll be like, "Oh, right, of course." And so, uh, just you know, to get things out there, out in front, um, was there a Deep Space One? Yes, there was. This is the late '90s, and so there was uh, NASA had what was called the New Millennium Program. And so, Deep Space One was the first uh, mission in this program, and it you know was this spacecraft. Uh, sent out in a deep space. It flew by uh, an asteroid, 9969 Braille, in July of 99. Um, and that ast- asteroid is named after the Braille you're thinking of. And uh, what's pretty notable is that it was the first uh, NASA spacecraft to use ion propulsion, um, this this Deep Space One. And so if you're wondering also, were there any other deep space missions beyond two, uh, which is right this week's uh, event? Uh, yes, there was a DS3 and a uh, DS4, but they were canceled. Uh, Deep Space 3 would have been a space interferometer and Deep Space 4 a comet sample return. Uh, so pretty cool and pretty ambitious in different ways. So in any event, Deep Space 2 was launched January 3rd, 1999 as part of the Mars Surveyor 98 program. And so this was the combination of Mars Climate Orbiter and Mars Polar Lander missions. Now we'd covered both of these on the show. Mars Climate Orbiter is the one with the infamous mismatch between SI units versus Imperial units, and Ben did a really deep dive where it wasn't just like, it was, there was more to it than just, you know, somebody said something should have been 100 and some other part of the spacecraft interpreted that as 60 or something like that, you know, it, it was, mm-hmm. it was, it was a lot more to it, so I, I'm pretty sure it was Ben who did the, uh, the twist on that one. And then Mars, and so because of that, uh, you know, infamous mismatch, the spacecraft wound up missing the red planet and never went into orbit. Now, the other one in Mar- uh, of this program was the Mars Polar Lander, and we also did cover that one. Um, that one lithobraked uh, by slamming into the Martian surface when it cut off its uh, descent engine uh, too soon, or its landing engines, I guess, uh, too soon. And it just kind of, you know, smashed into the surface. And so as though those two failures weren't enough, uh, Deep Space 2 wanted to just add even more failures to this, uh, you know, 1999 failure fest. And so uh, it, it, it was also called the Mars Microprobe Project. And, um, and we'll see why... You know, it has that micro probe in the name. It's uh, it was like I said before, it was a secondary mission, um, and it was in particular uh, attached to the uh, Mars Polar Lander mission, I guess, because it was it wasn't on the the Polar Lander itself; it was on the cruise stage. And so, what it was was it was a twenty eight million dollar mission, uh, so quite a bit cheaper compared to these you know other ones that when they fail, we're talking like one hundred fifty two hundred million dollar missions. And um, it was developed in only three years, which is a pretty quick turnaround for even, you know, a smaller secondary project like this. And it consisted of a pair of probes. Um, and these probes were named Scott and Amundsen, uh, which are named after uh, Antarctic explorers who went to the South Pole on Earth, the first kind of successful missions. Um, Scott and uh, their expedition actually did not make it back uh, alive. They they perished uh, on the return. Um but you know this, these were the first missions to the South Pole, and this uh, these you know the Mars Polar Lander 
name gives it away, was intended to land at the uh, south pole of Mars. And so um, it turns out uh, a, a Tucson grad student in the planetary uh, science department at the University of Arizona, Paul Withers, was the person who uh, won the kind of naming contest for naming these two probes. And what's pretty wonderful and gives you a sign of the times for, you know, any older listeners out there, is that they, uh, it sounds like the award or the reward for uh, winning this uh, this contest was a $4,000 gift certificate to Comp USA. So congratulations <laughs> to Paul Withers, who's now actually, I checked him up, he's a full-time, uh, you know, faculty in planetary science at Boston. Uh, college. I wonder if he ever used up that whole four thousand dollars. I wonder if he used up the four K at CompUSA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I ever run into him, I'll ask you. And the idea was that right, th- these these probes were going to basically detach from the Mars Polar Lander, and I'll talk a little more about the mission profile later. But the the the, the high level view is that they were going to detach and separately just slam into the Martian surface, and particularly. Uh, Around the South Pole, they have what's called uh, the South Polar Layered Terrain. Uh, and there's also this layered terrain at the North Pole of Mars, too. And it's thought to be, you know, these kind of, you know, alternating deposits that kind of give you a nice little geologic record of some combination of dust and ice and dust and ice and whatnot. And and, and you got this kind of striated, you know, layers there. And so these probes were going to basically land. They would test for whether there was subsurface water ice, uh, determine some of the physical properties. It had accelerometers on board. So how it decelerated uh, would tell you about what these layer deposits are actually like. And on the way in, it would measure the uh, atmospheric pressure and temperature, which is always good to know, uh, including, you know, knowing that and measuring those at the poles. So uh, the two probes themselves uh, weighed about 3.6 kilograms each, uh, of which 2.4 kilograms was actual, like, probe, you know, doing science and actual electronic type stuff. Uh, the remaining mass was the aeroshell impactor. And so uh, this is pretty cool. And this was the first time we ever tried doing this in space, uh, as I understand it. Um, you basically just had – you didn't have any parachute, no rockets, no airbags. You wanted these things to just go and slam into the Martian surface. And so the way that this would happen – well, the aeroshell obviously is the thing that protects you know, the, uh, the sensitive electronics and whatnot from the probe, of the probes from you know, the entry heating and all that. And so they were made of uh, a ceramic material and they were shaped in such a way that they would um, – be, you know, naturally want to kind of, I guess, you know, face down. And so they would impact near vertically um, within 24 degrees of uh, perfectly straight down. It was still going to have some horizontal motion, of course. Uh, and, and, and crucially, when it does that, it would shatter on impact and then let the probes be able to go and probe. And so when this would happen, uh, the probe themselves, and remember, there's, there's two of them uh, each in, you know, on this mission. There's two separate ones. Scott and Amundsen, and each of those uh, their probes consisted of an aft body and a fore body, and so the aft body was this more short, wide, cylindrical part, and that carried batteries, sensors, uh, an accelerometer, the antenna, which kind of stuck up, so you could communicate back to uh, whichever Mars orbiter you were going to use for your bent pike bent pipe communications back to Earth. And it was about 10 centimeters tall and 13 centimeters in diameter. So, you know, it was wider than it was tall. And it would stay above the surface 
Uh, I had a nice little sun sensor uh, kind of facing up to be able to tell, like, you know, okay, did we impact and do we impact in the correct orientation? Because I should be seeing the sun up in the sky and whatnot. And so here's some pretty wild numbers. Even for something like uh, OSIRIS-REx sample return, right, the type of Gs that it pulled coming back from space, um, because these probes were going to hit the surface, the aft body was designed and expected to experience, depending on the source, anywhere from 60,000 to 80,000 Gs of deceleration on contacting the surface. And in the 90s, they built this thing that they felt could (laughs) survive that. Um, Whether it did, uh, we don't know, actually. But yeah, I mean, this was going to form a 10 centimeter deep and uh, 50 centimeter wide crater. Uh, afterwards. And so, you know, go slam into this, you know, these polar deposits and the aft body experiencing those Gs would get, you know, stopped on the surface. But then within the aft body was the fore body. And so this was the penetrating part. And so rather than being wide and kind of thick, this one was longer and thin. So it was about the same height because it had to fit in the aft body. It was about 10 centimeters long, but it was only three and a half centimeters in diameter. So it was much longer than it was uh, wide. And so uh, it would only only experience something like uh, 30,000 Gs. And so it would just go flying out after impact out of the middle of the aft body and then into the dirt. Uh, or into the you know the terrain, and it had uh, it had a number of like you know tech demos integrated throughout. Overall, this mission, these probes were more tech than science. They were going to look like they did have some science that they were going to do, but more than anything, they wanted to qualify. You know, how are these batteries going to do under these conditions? Are these accelerometers going to work? Is this transmitter okay? And so there were a lot of different. Like, all of that was kind of like tech stuff. But the real meat and potatoes, though, of this forebody, the penetrator part of, the, of each probe, was that it had a drill in it. And even when you look at a picture of this, I have to stop myself because I, I, I always assume that the drill is going to be at the bottom, kind of drilling down into the soil. But rather, the drill is at the top of this forebody. So after this thing penetrates and it's completely underground... And uh, and it's still connected to the aft body on the surface by a uh, one to two meter flexible cable. Depends on the source. I've heard one meter and I've heard two meters. Um, so there's some space between it and the aft body. But it's at the top of the probe that a little sideways drill goes out and digs into the surface. And then it's able to pull the trailings into the probe just by rotating and guide them into a little sampling cup. And when it's in that cup, they had the electronics in there that would go and look for basically if there was water ice. And then if they had enough energy, or, you know, if their batteries had enough charge, I suppose, uh, they would then uh, heat up that sample in 10 degree Celsius increments and see kind of what vaporized each time and try to get a sense of what kind of water bearing minerals were in the sample. And so this was going to be a pretty cool like in situ, you know, uh, sampling, you know, that was going to be done pretty much on the cheap. And at a very tough uh, environment to hit, the poles, uh, they're not very easy to get to. That's what these two uh, uh, were, were, were there and designed to do. Now, the, the mission profile itself, okay, so right, so they launch on a, on a Delta II uh, 7425 configuration. All of this, you know, the, the real moment of truth happened uh, on December 3rd, 1999. And so just to remind you, right, this is you know basically later that year, uh, almost, I mean, Right, exactly uh, 11 months later, right? 3rd of January was the launch. 3rd December, same year, 1999, was entry interface. And so a few minutes before, uh, the Mars Polar Lander 
the primary uh, spacecraft, would uh, separate from the crew stage a few minutes before entry interface. And all the while, these two probes were totally quiet and not attached to the same electrical system. They were powered down. But by the Mars Polar Lander separating, apparently some like, you know, that would trigger some pyros, which would cause, you know, some other cascade of events that would happen, which would ultimately turn on the probes. And then 18 seconds later, after, you know, the Polar Lander uh, separated, the probes would then separate. And so, you know, they had a little bit of a delay behind them. And 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 the idea, how, how do you get such crazy accel- uh, decelerations, is that they're going to go and slam into the surface at anywhere from 160 to 200 meters per second, uh, which is ballpark 400 miles per hour. And again, because of their shape and design, they had a very small angle attack. It would keep it within 12 degrees, and they'd keep, again, that incident angle uh, within 24, 25 degrees. The idea is to just go splat into the surface straight down and try to penetrate as much as you can. So the, you know, you said what, about 400 miles an hour? Mm-hmm. So the aft body uh, is made of ceramic, right? No, sorry. The aero shell is made of ceramic. So oh, the, oh, the aero shell. Okay. Yeah, the aero shell disintegrates upon impact, essentially. Okay. Okay. Then, <laughs> that yeah. makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So what's the probe, aft body, and forebody made of? Because uh, 400 miles an hour, I mean, that's, you know, certainly survivable with all kinds of stuff, but I was just curious. Um, because I, I guess when you read 60 to 80,000 Gs, you're thinking that's like nothing could survive that. But really, a lot of things could. They would need to be robust and mm-hmm. made of uh, some kind of an alloy. Right. <laughs> I, and I don't know exactly what, but yeah, exactly. My... my I somewhat, what's the word? Cavalier answer would be metal. <laughs> They're made of metal. <laughs> but exactly the details, <laughs> yeah. which is the interesting part, I, I I just don't know. I didn't encounter that. I mean, what's really neat, though, is that they, they had, you know, these these chips, the transceivers, the, uh, the micro telecommunication system. Um, they had all these different, like, electronics uh, that uh, the microcontroller, they, they had those that had to be able to survive these tens of thousands of Gs. And um, yeah, yeah. They, they designed to it, and you know whether or not they actually achieved it is another question. I guess it, it, it's necessary because I mean, there's there, it. I don't think it would be that hard to create a system which could you know lessen the blow. Um, you would just have to create something that could you know actually absorb that impact, um, and you know gradually disperse those g loads over some distance. I mean, very small amount. You know, like make it out of rubber or something. But I'm guessing that it has to be a hard substance impacting at such high g loads just in order to get that penetration, right? Like that was you know part of why it did what it did, just to get it firmly in the ground there? Yeah, if if you look at the picture of it, you can kind of see that, you know, it is, well, because of those different shapes, you know, just all things being equal, for, the forebody is going to have a higher pressure as it kind of pushes right. its way into the surface and thus penetrate further. Whereas the other, you know, the aft body was designed to not actually go and just rather excavate a crater rather than uh, mm-hmm. descend into the surface. Yeah, just because like if you, you know, cushion the blow, then I don't think it would penetrate. It would probably just, you know, maybe mm. bounce off the surface and that would be bad. Right, Because <laughs> right. like this thing has to stick, you know. So yeah, I can kind of see why you have to come in really fast and just slam into it. I mean, that's exactly what you wanted to do. Yeah. At, at one point, they used the analogy of like a uh, a javelin or something where it needs to hit mm-hmm. at that particular uh, javelin to stick it in the ground needs to hit, you know, with the pointy end down. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not going to stick and penetrate at all. And so they they really needed this thing to be able to, you know, hit at this very 
low incidence angle and just kind of come in almost as high. the closer to vertical, the better. Right. Pretty crazy though to think about. So yeah. Now, uh, even though the probes um, detached from the crew stage uh, after the lander, uh, they're not breaking. <laughs> they're coming in hot. And so they actually would land uh, before the polar lander uh, would touch down. Although I guess the Mars polar lander did come in pretty hot too. So maybe it was designed to land 15 to 20 seconds before the lander, but maybe maybe they both landed or all around the same time since, you know, of course, the lander went splat. Basically, 12 minutes after entry interface ballpark, uh, they would all kind of touch down was the idea. Because of that, you know, 18 seconds, these would these probes would land uh, 50 to 100 kilometers away from the Mars polar lander. So same vicinity, generally, same region. Uh, and then, you know, anywhere from 1 to 10 kilometers from each other, depending on exactly what was going on as they plowed through the atmosphere. The forebody, the one that, you know, goes below the surface, uh, was designed to penetrate anywhere from 0.3 to 1 meter uh, below the surface. And so that, you know, really depended on the uh, the type of uh, regolith that it encountered, which was not really well known at the time. And uh, the mission length was only going to be one sol, one Martian day, since uh, most of the information you get, you get immediately, right? And the only kind of you still need to beam that data from all the accelerometers and the, the measuring the temperature and pressure through the atmosphere. But uh, everything with that soil, the kind of experiment that was on board in the forebody, that would take less than one Martian day uh, to, to, to square away. And so that was, that was what everything was planned for. But as I've already kind of alluded to, uh, you already had major failures with the climate orbiter and the polar lander, the bigger spacecraft. And so uh, just to add uh, to these failures were a couple of secondary failures where not even these probes could get things to work quite right. And so basically there was never any contact with either probe. Um, they knew they were going to lose contact uh, during entry interface, but they never were able to hear from it again and reestablish contact. And so to this day, the cause of the failure is unknown. And on March 13th, uh, 2000, so a few months after, you know, it hit the surface one way or another, um, they declared the mission a failure. So, I mean, that, you know, it was a very tough year for uh, for NASA missions. Uh, uh, that was a, a big string of failures, uh, one after the other after the other. And so in any event... Yeah, that was this week in spaceflight history. Cool. Well, yeah, I, I guess you could say it was a long shot, right? I mean, <laughs> hey, that could have been a clue. That, I like that. All right, David. Next week is the 9th to the 15th of January. And do you have a clue for us? I do. Uh, so next week in 1997, uh, Merry Belated Christmas, I Got You a Fan. <laughs> <laughs> like Always a great one. Christmas present. Always yeah. a great Christmas present. And so uh, if you have a guess to what this uh, Christmas clue is referencing, uh, you can email us at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a tweet on Mastodon using the hashtag ThisWeekSF or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash Discord for an invite to our Discord server. Uh, just type uh, slash TWSF to hand your guests directly to TomBot. And good luck, everybody. Good luck. Okay, uh, so let's move right along then to upcoming spaceflight events. First of the new year, actually. <laughs> Thank you, as always, to Launch Library 2, which is where we start our research each week. Uh, so, yeah, we got five launches. Uh, what's the first one? And unsurprisingly, it's a Falcon 9. All right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, don't know which booster, but yeah, we got uh, on January 3rd, Wednesday, uh, Falcon 9 Block 5. That'll be taking Starlink Group 79 to LEO. Uh, this one will be going out of launching out of Vandenberg, Space Force Base, uh, at Slick 4E. Uh, again, on Wednesday, January 3rd, with a window from 0213 to 0613 UTC. And then after that is another Falcon 9 Block 5. Yeah, uh, I think they might make 100 this year. <laughs> um, and this one is launching OVZONE or OVZON 3. Uh, it's a small communication satellite of the Swedish U.S. company Ovzon or Ovzon. This was supposed to have launched for, well, since about, looks like December 15th was its first targeted launch date. And then it just kept getting pushed back. Mm-hmm. So hopefully it'll lift off this time. The launch window for this is uh, on January 3rd, 2304 UTC through 2345. It's launching from Cape Canaveral from Slick 40. So, yep, check that one out. And afterwards, we have our first of two uh, Chinese launches. Um, we've got a Kuaizhou uh, 1A, which is the uh, rocket that comes from the company uh, X-Pace, um, taking an unknown payload uh, to an unknown orbit. Um, but we do have uh, some NOTAMs that suggest that this will be taking place on January 5th, uh, Friday, uh, between 1,000 UTC and 1,500 UTC, uh, launching out of the uh, Juchuan Satellite Launch Center. And then after that, we have Vulcan. Its designation is VC-2S, and the VC stands for Vulcan Centaur. The 2 is the number of solid rocket boosters, and the S stands for a standard payload fairing size. Um, so this is the standard size, and uh, yeah, and there's a long version, which is what is used to launch um, – what was it that they're launching? Uh, uh, Dream Chaser. Oh, Dream Chaser. Mini yeah. Shuttle. Okay, Mini Shuttle. And that one will use the L variety, which is long. So yeah, really cool. So we're, we're just going to have to learn how to – Get used to the Vulcan naming system. Um, but yeah, so this is launching Peregrine Lunar Lander. And so the window for that is on January 8th at 0718 UTC through 0803 UTC. So a pretty good size launch window. And it's launching from Slick 41 at Cape Canaveral. So yeah, check that one out. I will try to watch that. It'll be cool to see. And then in addition to that, there's a couple of things on NASA TV you could watch pertaining to this mission. Um, there is on January 4th at uh, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, there is a science media briefing for the Astrobotics Clips flight or the Peregrine Mission 1. Uh, and then on January 5th is a media teleconference. It looks like this is just uh, the audio. So I guess you could watch it on NASA TV, but there's nothing to watch. So this is a media teleconference for the NASA lunar delivery readiness of the mission. But yeah, so listen to that if you want to get an idea about what to expect. And that's on January 4th and January 5th. And then finally, uh, with some more NOTAMs, we have our second uh, Chinese launch uh, this week and the final uh, for our current list. And uh, this will be a Kinetica 1, which is a CAS Space's uh, rocket. It's all solids, you know, one of these multi-stage uh, uh, solid after solid after solid. Um, also taking an unknown payload to an unknown orbit. Um, but this launch uh, will be taking place uh, nominally on Wednesday, January 10th, with a window from 0200 UTC to 0800 UTC, uh, also flying out of Jiuquan Satellite Launch Center uh, in China. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. That means it's time to do with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific and 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Chris S. and The Greek for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show, please tell a friend, or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. You could also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign 
campaign and affiliate links. And get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about. Or you can skip all that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody, and see you.